0: I'm Satya Doyle-Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this, how will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus known as the Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. So this is our third installment of these Sunday salons, and we're excited to be with you all. Again, as always, our own sort of pleasure with being with you and and, and joy of going through this material is really paired with our knowledge, as we talk about before you all arrive, of just how much is actually going on in the world right now. And inevitably, that's part of all of these deep dives. Jung's work, all of his work, the Red Book book, in particular, really is holding that space between the inner depths and the outer depths, the inner pain and the outer pain, and also all the alchemy that comes from that. And so please know, even though, you know, I feel sort of joyful to be with you, we're always in this trying to host the the kind of full extent of what is happening on our planet right now, both the beauty and the suffering, um, and don't lose sight of that. We hope that you're all well and staying healthy and your loved ones are staying healthy and, um, and we're glad to have a chance to be with you here. So we're going to be moving through this story by story. If you're following along, we're starting today on page 141 in the Reader's Edition. Again, this is the English translation. Different translations are slightly different. So Carol, anything you want to add before we uh, sort of dive into the desert yeah. here?
1: yeah um well, i I would like to do a little recapitulation from last week of of where, as I said to, to Satya, where we last left our hero, yeah because it it gives it all the more meaning. Just a, really briefly, it's 1913. He's had a powerful, powerful, prescient dream where all of Northern Europe is flooded. It leads him to a a break with his mentor and teacher and colleague, Sigmund Freud, and it begins a journey into the depths, into his personal depths, and he has some trepidation in the beginning, but because he's in full position of power, and we could say still thinks he's in control, he's bringing himself to a threshold of an encounter, He says, for those of you who have the book, it's page 139. If you take a step toward your soul, you will at first miss the meaning. You'll believe that you've sunk into meaningless, into eternal disorder. You will be right. Nothing will deliver you from disorder and meaninglessness since this is the other half of the world. And then he goes on reflecting on that, and then he says... I spoke to a loving soul, and as I drew nearer to her, I was overcome by horror, and I heaped up a wall of doubt, and did not anticipate that I thus wanted to protect myself from my fearful soul. You dread the depths. It should horrify you, since the way of what is to come leads through it. I, I'm very struck by that of what it brings us to in the desert and the descent into hell that we're going to talk about next, because these are the times that we're in, that in the way that Jung's time brought him to this portal, our times have brought us to ours. And not that his descent is our descent, he makes that very clear that we have to do this ourselves, but that this, he's a way shower about the encounter and the
0: process. Thank you. Beautiful setup. And really brings us straight into the beginning of the reading, The Desert. If you can handle it and I can handle it, I'm going to read quite a bit to try to pull us in today. It's all of of this section of The Desert. And you may have it, you're welcome to follow along. If not, I really welcome you to just sort of sit back and hear it because A lot of people have said this in the last decade or so since the Red Book was published, but it it takes on such a different essence when it's read aloud. So um, feel free if you want just to sit back. We're really exploring in this Jung's process into the encounter with his soul. And as Carol just spoke to, it's the the drawing down. Carol, you wanna say anything about this image just as you have it up here? Well,
1: part of what we'll talk about today is the power of the creative response, not just in language, but in images to uh, crossing the, the portal, to cross, crossing through the portal and crossing the threshold into the unconscious. And at the beginning, you we, we saw the text of the last image where he is largely writing, 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 writing. And now as he begins this journey, as he really deepens into the journey, images begin to appear to him. And this is the initial letter for when he begins to tell us, I'm surprised my soul is a desert. So this is the capital letter of that page.
0: Again, we're, we're moving into the experience of conversation with soul. And there's, there's not much dialogue yet. But when the dialogue starts, it's really quite hilarious at times. And so we're going to move into a lot of this. So again, this is page 141. We're just starting here. Sixth night. My soul leads me into the desert, into the desert of my own self. I did not think that my soul is a desert, a barren, hot desert, dusty and without drink. The journey leads through hot sand, slowly wading without a visible goal to hope for. How eerie is this wasteland? It seems to me that the way leads so far away from mankind. I take my way step by step and do not know how long my journey will last. Why is myself a desert? Have I lived too much outside of myself in men and events? Why did I avoid myself? Was I not dear to myself? But I have avoided the place of my soul. I was my thoughts after I was no longer events and other men, but I was not myself confronted with my thoughts. I should also rise up above my thoughts to my own self. My journey goes there, and that is why it leads away from men and events into solitude. Is it solitude to be with oneself? Solitude is true only when the self is a desert. Should I also make a garden out of the desert? Should I people a desolate land? Should I open the airy magic garden of the wilderness? What leads me into the desert, and what am I to do there? Is it a deception that I can no longer trust my thoughts? Only life is true, and only life leads me into the desert, truly not my thinking, that would like to return to thoughts, to men and events, since it feels uncanny in the desert. My soul, what am I to do here? But my soul spoke to me and said, wait. I heard the cruel word, torment belongs to the desert. So I'm just going to pause here and say this whole section that we're reading through today is this beginning of Jung's separation from his intellect, which he sees as his superior function. I think anyone would see as his superior function. And we get into what that means in terms of murdering his own hero. And so you can feel this. He's starting this descent into the shift from his primary identification, how his ego really identifies himself as Carl, as Carl Jung, and it starts to shift there. Through giving my soul all I could give, I came to the place of the soul and found that this place was a hot desert, desolate and unfruitful. No culture of the mind is enough to make a garden out of your soul. I had cultivated my spirit, the spirit of this time in me, But not that spirit of the depths that turns to the things of the soul, the world of the soul. The soul has its own peculiar world. Only the self enters in there, or the man who has completely become his self, he who is neither in events, nor in men, nor in his thoughts. Through the turning of my desire from things and men, I turned myself away from things and men. But that is precisely how I became the secure prey of my thoughts. Yes, I wholly became my thoughts. I also had to detach myself from my thoughts through turning my desire away from them. And at once I noticed that myself became a desert where only the sun of unquiet desire burned. I was overwhelmed by the endless infertility of this desert. Even if something could have thrived there, the creative power of desire was still absent. Wherever the creative power of desire is, there springs the soil's own seed. But do not forget to wait Did you not see that when your creative force turned to the world, how the dead things moved under it and through it, how they grew and prospered, and how your thoughts flowed in rich rivers? If your creative force now turns to the place of the soul, you will see how your soul becomes green and how its field bears wonderful fruit. Nobody can spare themselves the waiting, and most will be unable to bear this torment, but will throw themselves with greed back at men, things, and thoughts, whose slaves they will become from then on. Since then it will have been clearly proved that this man is incapable of enduring beyond things, men, and thoughts, and they will hence become his master, and he will become their fool, since he cannot be without them, not until his even his soul has become a fruitful field. Also, he whose soul is a garden needs things, men, and thoughts, but he is their friend, not their slave and fool. Everything to come was already in images. To find their soul, the ancients went into the desert. This is an image. The ancients lived their symbols, since the world had not yet become real for them. Thus they went into the solitude of the desert to teach us that the place of the soul is a lonely desert. There they found the abundance of visions, the fruits of the desert, the wondrous flowers of the soul. Think diligently about the images that the ancients have left behind. They show the way of what is to come. Look back at the collapse of empires, of growth and death, of the desert and monasteries. They are the images of what is to come. Everything has been foretold, but who knows how to interpret it? When you say that the place of the soul is not, then it is not. But if you say that it is, then it is. Notice what the ancients said in images. The word is a creative act. The ancients said in the beginning was the word. Consider this and think upon it the words that oscillate between nonsense and supreme meaning are the oldest and truest. So we'll pause there. There is so much in this one, and this is just one, what I'm calling the story or chapters of Jung's book, but we feel him starting to shift his value system and, and the focus of all of his attention. And then we get into his contemplations of image and, what is this projection of soul onto the world and the retraction of projection onto the world, which Carol and I will explore with you today. And and it also, I mean, Carol, we hadn't spoken about this, but it just strikes me again of reading this of the 40 days in the desert, right? And and again, the origin of quarantine, the 40 days that the ships were expected to stay offshore, this number 40 that we're so much in with quarantine right now, quarantine, Um, And the way that we are all now contracting back into our homes for contemplation and a different kind of inner life. It strikes me now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, this phrase at the top of 143: everything to come was already in images. And then this observation that in the beginning was the word you you can feel his struggle right there. Is everything in images or is it in language? Mm -hmm. And as all of us are absorbed in the, the distractions, we could call it, of contemporary life. When, when I read all of these articles and see people in their homes trying to figure out how to entertain their children
0: mm-hmm.
1: and how to distract themselves and people who are bored because the outer world and the habits and the customs of, the, of how to distract yourself from your own desert aren't available in the way that they were. So not only on a, on a personal level of how do you turn to something, but on a collective level, how do you, how do you collectively turn to something? It, it reminds me of a conversation I had with my grandson when he was very, very young and really into video games. And we were doing homework, and I said, you need to concentrate. He said, I can concentrate. He said, I can concentrate on video games all day long. And I said, well, you're concentrating on someone else's idea. And so a part of this time, I, I think I think about my own experience of this time of coming back to my own creative life after not having abandoned it, but of having to have set it aside for something else, that this idea, first of all, of arrival at the desert, the shock that it's a desert, that it has apparently no life in it mm-hmm. and that you can't just begin as if everything was just going to yield to what your desire to have happen was that you have to wait the the idea that you have to wait i think about the reading in the jing that's called waiting and it, it says waiting is not mere empty hoping
0: mm-hmm.
1: it has the certainty that when we wait for rain it comes and so of calculated
0: hand, waiting yeah
1: calculated or, waiting yeah yeah just the arrival and the sense to wait even though what he encounters is going to be difficult mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah so let's let me i want to we're going to come back to this issue of the ancients in the desert right because we want to talk a bit about collective individuation but let's just jump for a moment to 144 because he starts talking to his soul and there's a few really beautiful and important passages i think he says uh So this is just quite just right after what we just read, but he starts talking to his soul and feeling frustrated. You know, what are you putting me through? Essentially he's saying, and she says, says my soul answered and said, you speak to me as if you were a child complaining to its mother. I am not your mother. He says, I do not want to complain, but let me say to you that mine is a long and dusty road. You are to me like a shady tree in the wilderness I would like your shade, but my soul answered, you are pleasure seeking. Where is your patience? Your time has not yet run its course. Have you forgotten why you went into the desert? And then if we just jump to 144, such an important piece here as he starts to do all of this, this separation from his primary identification with his intellect and with external, his thoughts, he's very, of course, self-aware around all of this it's not that he's lacking self-awareness but of course for any of us who are think at least that we're self-aware there's still an endless shifting of consciousness and ego identification so so she's just sort of chided him for acting like a little boy and then he says um he really starts to explore i think of this a bit as toxic masculinity but what we all experience of if that and patriarchy of the way that we are you know, terrified of shame, how much weight shame has. And he calls it scorn here. It feels very similar, all of that. So I'll read you this other paragraph here. Let me bring only one complaint before you. And he's saying this to his soul. Let me bring only one complaint before you. I suffer from scorn, my own scorn. But my soul said to me, do you think little of yourself? I do not believe so. My soul answered, then listen, do you think little of me? Do you still not know that you are not writing a book to feed your vanity, but that you are speaking with me? How can you suffer from scorn if you address me with those words that I give you? Do you know then who I am? Have you grasped me, defined me, and made me into a dead formula? Have you measured the depths of my chasms and explored all the way down which I am yet going to lead you? Scorn cannot challenge you if you are not vain to the marrow of your bones. Your truth is hard, Jung says. Your truth is hard. I want to lay down my vanity before you since it blinds me. See, that is why I also believed my hands were empty when I came to you today. I did not consider that it is you, you, my soul, who fills empty hands if only they want to stretch out. Yet they do not want to. I did not know that I am your vessel, empty without you, but brimming over with you.
1: I'm, I'm struck again. If we, if we think about um, a contemporary artist that many of you are familiar with because of her writing on creativity, Elizabeth Gilbert, she talks about that after the success of Eat, Pray, Love, people were asking her, was she worried about her second book being successful? She said, it's the kind of thing that makes you start drinking gin before breakfast, and then she thought, wait a minute, my father was an experimental chemist and no one asked him if he thought his next experiment was going to fail. And so she, she did some homework, which is essentially a modern understanding of this last paragraph. She talks about how in the ancient world, the collective soul spoke through craftspeople so that they built monuments and drew on pyramids and made things. And she said, sometime around the, Gilbert says, sometime around the Renaissance, instead of doing work and offering it up as a form of devotion and uh, and gratitude for receiving inspiration, men decided they, they were it. That the genius that lay outside them, her, her word was genius, and it's a, it's a really old Mesopotamian Sumerian word, all of those wonderful Big beaked creatures with purses and feathered skirts are the geniuses that bring creativity in the ancient world and or genii or genies. And so this idea that genius doesn't belong to you, it's outside of you and that you in, can invoke it and maybe it'll show up and maybe it won't. As she said after she really understood that, that now it's not that we are geniuses, but that we have to remember the relationship with with where life and spirit and imagination really come from. And she said after that, she she says, I just show up. I show up. And I think about, you know, you and I have the great privilege of working pretty constantly with some wonderful, thoughtful, really talented people. And this week, people presented us with the images of the times and of the depths. And the, the image-making that's coming through individual artists, the forms that they are taking, that something is something larger than the individual expression is speaking through the individuals. And having its voice heard is very much, um, I, I, you know, I, I was both awestruck and humbled by the kind of surrender and the kind of form that comes from the surrender, that I think is the great possibility of this time. But again, it's very easy to say if you still have a job and if you don't have little kids at home that need feeding and that, that this ask of the world right now, the, of the inward turning to find the collective soul and how we're all going to be in relationship to it, the potential creativity of this moment and what it can create is enormous. But we're only at the beginning. And again, here at Jung, he's just walked into the desert. So
0: well, that's it. And I think it. part of what's fun for us to be doing this, I mean, again, fun in relative terms. Okay. Sure. Always holding that. For for us to be entering his journey as we are entering our own contraction in this time. And again, I mean, astrologically, just holding as we've spoken about in the in the last couple gatherings, how sort of poignant. I mean, I, I'm hearing from a lot of people, my dream life is on fire in a way that it hasn't been for a while. For me, that's just feeling that Neptune and Pisces energy, but but it's happening simultaneous to this contraction of, of all the rest, Pluto, Saturn, Mars, Jupiter, all conjunct right now. And the Mars right. energy, I, I mean, this is again, as a non-astrologer, but the Mars energy mixed in that there's so much activity in the midst of this contraction, in, yeah. internal and external, right? Yeah. But- Carol, I mean, you said you just spoke to so many things and I want to dive into this idea of our personal individuation, our, our personal growth of consciousness or shift of consciousness and how that relates to the collective and what you just described about Elizabeth Gilbert's understanding of creativity or, or sort of coming into relationship with creativity. It is so much of Jung's journey and individuation, right? And and so I want to kind of briefly do a little intro to it or, or summary of it. Not oh, great. But that it gets us to that, that passage you and I were speaking of uh, earlier about the ancients in the desert, right? So really briefly, there's this idea sort of within Jungian psychology that the growth of consciousness, it sort of, it starts as if the ego is completely identified with the spirit of the depths or that there is in Young in the Red Book language, no difference between the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths. And then over time, the spirit of the times grows as it ages in three dimensional existence and linear time. And the spirit of the times, which we can think of as kind of the ego of the self, begins to believe it exists entirely by itself. And I, I feel like what you just expressed about creatives thinking like, oh, I now I made this, I made this, right? <laughs> That's this kind of teenage idea that our, whole, that our whole world has been in now, this very patriarchal, dissociated notion, oh, I made this as if it didn't come from anywhere else, right? The spirit of the times, I think we, we start to realize cannot create things without the spirit of the depths. And that's really Jung starting to break all of this down with terror, and his soul is chiding, you know, making fun of him a bit. Come on, man, get with the program, right? But the third, the third development of this is that the spirit of the times remembers the spirit of the depths via the soul, this this bridge, and really then has to come into a deep dialogue and relationship. And that, that then is the sense of I'm the vessel, help me create, I I will create what you want me to create. I will bring to existence in this world what you are asking me to bring to existence in this world and am not going to identify myself with it the way that I might have years prior but I'm also and this gets to the ancients and this what Jung calls primitive psychology there's you know this is part of the 20% maybe of trying to reform ways that Jung spoke of this, but he didn't mean that really condescendingly. I mean, his understanding was that there is an early form of collective consciousness and an early form of individual consciousness in which we do not know that we are not the ones making the sunrise. When we when we do the rituals to bring the sun up out of the horizon every single morning, or all of the rituals to make it rain and to bring fertility and to bring the animals for the hunt, that there is an earlier form of consciousness in Jung's description where we gen humans genuinely believe that we are the ones making these things happen. And then we shift and genuinely believe we can control everything and that the world is meaningless in a form. First, we are all connected to the meaning, the humans and the meaning are all one. And then there is sort of nothing that is meaningful in a way. And so what we're all moving towards now and what Jung's journey moves towards is a fundamental respect for both our capacity <clears throat> to create in our willpower and a respect from where we came from.
1: And I want to add to this, Satya and I were talking about one of those $64 words, participation mystique, the, the mysterious participation of what Satya is calling uh, the collective consciousness of, a, of an earlier time. People like Martine Prechtel talk about this in indigenous tribes. And Jung spoke about this, that, that the wind is your auntie and the rivers are your grandmother's and the earth is your mother. And that, that there, is, there is not a differentiation, never mind control or, or creativity, right. that you are part of something that's so much bigger than you are. And it has your back and it has your front but that you are not differentiated and that things move with a kind of oneness. And then there is separateness.
0: Well, and Carol, let me just pause there. Cause that's so important. And it, it's individually. And I remember this so distinctly. I remember traveling with my parents as a child and I left my favorite stuffed animal on a train and I was completely uh, inconsolable. I, I don't know how long, but because I had left part of my soul on the train, it was gone from me. I was so much that stuffed animal and I, and this is early human consciousness, right? But it's part of this same cultural consciousness and this development. We, we project, I mean, again, in Jung's language, we project parts of ourselves out into the physical world. And so when those things are destroyed, or, or when we are separate from those things, we psychologically collapse, we, we, we psychologically fragment, and that it's not just being dramatic or being silly, there is a fundamental fragmentation that happens to an early ego, or to, again, in Jung's understanding of this, which I think is a little politically incorrect now, but it's it's something deeply to contemplate. In the development of collective consciousness, these earlier ways that if we are so fundamentally tied to the external world that we collapse or crumble when it is changed. When I lost my stuffed animal, this happened several times. And I think anyone who's had a child in their lives, you know, we've all experienced this. I had to repair that somehow so that that part of my soul could come back to me, you know, or you stay fragmented. So it's this personal and collective, again, this dialogue between the both. And I, I just want to add one more thing because
1: I, we, you and I both want to go a direction with this in terms of the next step in the desert and this idea of co- conflict and projection uh, outwards. What you're describing is really, the, well, I think, the heartbeat of astrological thinking, that in the very, very er- early cultures and civilizations, whether it's Sumerian, Mesopotamia and Acadia or China or India or Native Americans or the Mayans, This idea that good governance, including self-governance, that it's not just that you're making stuff, it's that you are co-creating, that the you of you is co-creating, and that the culture is in a relationship to a very large maker or making, and that paying attention to the rhythms of nature through the observation, pattern-making, and recording of the movement of nature, primarily of the sky... Is a, a, a message. Align yourself with this. If you know, move, move with this, it doesn't mean that everything is expectable and repeatable because, of course, there are anomalies. I, I say to my clients if the moon shows us the utter, utter reliability of the tides, then Neptune shows us tsunamis that there are, there are what we can count on and then there are anomalies. But this, I, it, it's really why Jung had a relationship with astrological thinking was because that, that's essentially astrological thinking. What is not only the nature of this time, but when was the last time this happened and the last time before that and the last time before that, and how can we know this?
0: Right. And I just flashed me to page 152 of the reading today, because again, for Jung, it was this question of of time and events externally that really, if we're fully aligned with the muse or the soul, and I, I think a lot of us felt this in different ways, this sort of sense that something was coming or some preparation that was happening internally for us for this time so I'm just going to read this section again, this ultimately, what we're trying to get to is that the depths and the times have a deep relationship, and that the spirit of the times respects fundamentally the knowledge of the spirit of the depths. So he says depths and surface should mix so that new life can develop. Yet the new life does not develop outside of us, but within us. What happens outside us in these days is the image that the people's live in events to bequeath this image immemorially to far off time so that they might learn from it in the, for their own way, just as we learn from the images that the ancients had lived before us in events. Life does not come from events but from us. Everything that happens outside has already been for me, that feels so much like this, this aligning, again, it's like the stars are going to do what the stars are going to do. And they're going to affect us the way they're going to affect us, whether we like it or not. And again, it's like what the soul is saying to Jung, get on board or don't. Yeah. Don't really- complain to me. I didn't okay. make the stars. You know, I'm not making these transits. I'm not Creating these conjunctions, <laughs> right? Uh, but get on board or don't. It's up to you how much this rattles you and destroys you. If a tsunami's coming, find high ground. I'm not. Don't complain to me, right?
1: So I think that's a good segue to to page one fifty three. You all have a share in the murder, so so okay, go good. from there about you know the kind of decision that's possible for us to make or not. That without judgment that everybody has to find a place to stand in relationship to this.
0: Right, so this is, this. we start to get in here to Jung, Jung is describing the murder of the hero. And in the Red Book, he's, he's doing this dance again between the external events and the internal events. So he keeps referencing the, the murder of the prince, Prince Ferdinand, right? That kicked mm-hmm. off uh, World War yeah. I. yeah, And the image of that murder of the prince that for Jung is a symbol externally of what we each need to be doing internally. And so the red book is his exploration of where he starts to become what he describes the murderer and the murdered, where as he enters into this journey and as his soul keeps telling him, keep going, man, it's not my responsibility, right? This is happening whether you like it or not. He starts to understand if I don't murder if I don't kill off my superior function, if I don't kill off the scorn and the obsessive relationship to my intellect, if I don't kill off this orientation to hierarchy and approval and uh, the external world and, and patriarchy and all, you know all the ways we might interpret this now, although he used the same words then for the most part, if he's recognizing if I don't ultimately kill these things off and let myself both be the murderer and the murdered, then I'm not living my own existence. I'm not moving towards my own creative depths. I'm not moving towards the development of my consciousness, but I'm also leaving all of this energy to simply be projected onto the external world. And we see what's happening in that with the world wars and all of the suffering. If we don't do this work personally, it becomes a projected experience out in the physical world. And, and this is, he starts all these beautiful lines, and they go throughout the book, but of brothers murdering brothers. He says, this is the top of 154 They must all sacrifice each other since the time has not yet come when man puts the bloody knife into himself in order to sacrifice the one he kills in his brother. They should sacrifice the hero in themselves, and because they do not know this, they kill their courageous brother. The time is still not ripe, but through this blood sacrifice, it should ripen. So long as it is possible to murder the brother instead of oneself, the time is not ripe. Frightful things must happen until men grow ripe, but anything else will not ripen humanity. Hence all this that takes place in these days must also be so that the renewal can come, since the source of blood that follows the shrouding of the sun is also the source of this new life.
1: Well, I want to bring up just briefly here Jung's horoscope to talk about this for the astrologers and for those interested in astrology, especially the murder of the prince. This idea, because Jung himself was born in a culture in which men were heroes and princes, and because Jung was a prince, son, and this is what we have here in the inner wheel, is the his natal chart. And then this is the horoscope of his encounter with the desert. And then this is the horoscope of the when he begins to descend into hell. And we're on the lip of that right now in terms of the journey. But I'm particularly struck by, from an astrological point of view, that his understanding that something so profound and so powerful and so hot and so willful in him that can make others wrong, that he can make himself right by making other people wrong. And the kind of, in a way, structure and rule that come out of that is that that's what has to die. And he's at his first Uranus return, and so Uranus is astrology's name for the energy that is outside a system. Here Jung, a man who has prided himself on, both on being inside the system and who has been very successful as a result of being inside that system, now finds himself confronted with what happens when you step outside the system. I mean, there are other things astrologically to talk about here, but I sort of, when you and I have talked about this before, all of a sudden the idea of the murder of Franz Joseph, the assassination of Franz Joseph, and this and idea, his understanding of how that lives in men and women in that time. And I think about this time, about how we, as a collective, make each other wrong and how we want to make each other wrong. I, you know, I think about building walls then I think about the, the collective process of creating a structure that ensures our rightness, that keeps everything else out. And so this struggle that Jung is having right now is our struggle right now in terms of how do we live, how do we stay alive while we are destroying the structures that have created this incredible estrangement and difficulty.
0: Thank you, Carol. Really, I think also speaks to why Jung located this psychological transformation so much at midlife is that that his knowledge of the Uranus transit, right? And how fundamentally disruptive and and, um, altering that is for the psyche, because he was having his own this his first Uranus return. Is that right?
1: Not not a return. He was having this first it, it takes Uranus about between 84 and 86 years to make one complete circuit of the Zodiac. So he was at the midpoint, but you know, there usually our Saturn return and the first midway point of Uranus happen at the same time. And we're, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what relevance do you make of the fact that Uranus entered Taurus recently too? I mean, how much of that in terms of what we're all expo- I feel like we haven't spoken to that much.
1: No. Well, this is very reductive because there's plenty to be said about it, but a revolution around how we are rooted on Earth. If Uranus is outside the system and Earth is, is where we're embodied and rooted and where we're domestic and where we love life and where we love matter, where, we're, where we love being in matter, where we're truly in the lap of the great mother, and we think of, of Earth as sustaining and that we're in an interpenetrating relationship with her, then Uranus is a shock to all of that. And what I've been saying to people, what I've been saying to myself after flying all over everywhere for the past three years is, okay, girl, time to come down to Earth. And that, um, that there is a, a radicalization of our relationship with the Earth, I this you know clearly this has been coming for a very very long time, and I think in many ways people didn't believe it. And now we we as he says it has to get pretty serious before it has to get your attention. It has our attention, or at least it has the attention of many of us. I would maybe that's a more accurate way to say it.
0: Right. Yeah. And again, I mean holding then all of this painful and radical transformation that's happening astrologically, collectively, personally. And Jung doesn't say that lightly, right? I mean, he really goes throughout the book, he's saying, there's so much suffering, and it's so terrible, and I don't want to see what is to come, Uh, both for himself and collectively. Jung's visions, sometimes of 600 years into the future, of the coming new religion, and the new transformation of consciousness, that there's some suggestion that he really was seeing way, way into the future. And it wasn't just this 10 years or two years or something of his own development, right? But he was really deeply seeing in the future, including 50 years after his death, which is somewhere, we're past that now, but around the time that we're in now, which he really saw another massive social transformation happening. But that he understood that always holding how painful that is, and fundamentally also potentially how critical that is for us to wake up and keep waking up and to, for consciousness to keep waking up and, and transforming.
1: One of the ways I'm thinking about this time, this is, again, this is so reductive, but the incredible compression of Capricorn, that, that Capricorn, the sign of winter, and that winter contracts and keeps the light inside the dark. And that we've been in winter to the nth power for these years. And then Neptune and Pisces surrender and Chiron in in Aries, Ignition, Mm. and Uranus in Taurus, Revolution. And I think that we are at this moment in this place, in the crucible, in the Alembic, where these are the things that are all being cooked together right now, and that they don't happen tidily, chronologically, and sequentially, that they're all um, coming together to give birth to something else for a very, very long time. And our situation is astrologically, um, in many ways, analog to the times in which Jung was having this experience, which is, you know, what we're doing here.
0: So let's That's, open it up to q and Let's do it. Okay, so we're, we're ready for all of you. We'd love your thoughts, and we welcome your questions.
1: This is uh, Guru Hari, Carol, just finishing that thought you had, and I've been trying, trying, wanting to ask this question for all three classes, but the Capricorn contr- contraction,
0: when does that cycle end?
1: <laughs> well, do you mean, so let me make sure I understand what your question is. When does this that we're in the middle of come to an end? No, because you keep bringing up that common theme that it's a period of this deep winter. Capricorn is in a contraction mode, So it must reverse it sometime or come out of that phase. So if you think about the Zodiac, if you think about the astrological language in general and the Zodiac in particular, it is a symbolic way in which we are able to hold all time so that it's a field and the field has spring in it. It has summer in it. It has fall in it and it has winter in it. And that. In us individually and in the world on Earth, we will experience the entire field chronologically and sequentially, but some fields are, become more activated than other fields in ways that can be known. So the field Capricorn, which is deep winter, it is, it's always there. Winter is always there. It's like looking at the yin-yang symbol. That there is a place in, the, in, the, in a, a round where it is dark and inside the darkest dark is light. So the promise of the return of the light is always there in the way that Capricorn at, at, at December 20th, we have three very, very dark days, but the, the promise of the rest of the cycle is inherent in it. So the challenge is how to be in this part of the cycle, especially in a culture that loathes darkness, that wants to keep the lights on all the time. Anyway, my soapbox, I won't go on and on. I like the light and little electrons as much as anybody. But to your question, the planet Pluto activated the Capricornian field in September of 2008 and will not leave there until 2024. Pluto's been in Capricorn before, the United States was born in 1776 when Pluto was in Capricorn. So we, as Americans, are having our Pluto return in our chart. So the underworld around in, and darkness, a sort of double darkness of how time is bringing us to our underworld and all the things that can mean, both the riches that are in the underworld, the psyche in the underworld, and the loss and the sorrow Uh, that is implied in the underworld. Saturn came to Capricorn in January of 2018, and Jupiter came to Capricorn in November of 2019. And so in November, December, and January, February, and March, the entire Capricornian field out of the whole surround was highly, highly activated. So here we are, never mind that the actual date is April, winter is still active in us and it will continue to be active in us to a certain extent through 2024. Jupiter will get to, will leave and go into Aquarius and we're all looking at the Saturn-Jupiter conjunction in Aquarius at the end of the year. So, The energy, in the same way that Capricorn leads to Aquarius, that the light inside the dark leads to an opening and an unfolding and a new breath, a new inspiration, a new aspiration, a new expansion. We'll begin to see that at the end of the year. But the reckoning of Pluto and Capricorn isn't done with us until 2024. Then we won't have to go through this again for a very, very long time.
0: But we will have Pluto entering Aquarius right I mean it's still Hades is with us whether we like it or not right Um, welcome to his world but also Carol I mean I think just again it's for super uh, elementary astrology thinking uh, which is where I live but all of these conjunctions that there were all of these conjunctions between Pluto and Saturn Saturn has now passed Pluto so that that conjunction really happened when when the coronavirus seems to have sprouted. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, and Jupiter was in the mix too. So if you if you think about this of understanding our energies projected into the collective, you know, sort of like a big movie, a great big holographic movie and three powerful characters in in the story, not just that story out there but in our story. And one figure, huge figure, is Pluto, and the the un, the Lord of the Underworld, Hades. The other figure is Saturn, the Senex, the old man. The, for those of you who are I Ching devotees, I think of Saturn as reading number sixty. It's limit, the principle of limitation, that there is at work in the world an energy Saturnian that says. Make choices that limit you. you. You don't get to do everything. You have to m- build a structure of value and meaning through limitation. And Zeus, Jupiter goes, I'm going to grow everything and I'm going to make it really big. And so imagine these three huge characters and they all step into each other. Each with their own nature, each with their own character, each with their own skill set, each with their own dynamism. And the force of the three of them combined radiates out in us as an experience of underworld, structure collapse, and growth. And you, you can't get a clearer picture of what it is, metaphorically anyway. And I think about the incredible drawings that people have been sharing with me, that they've been drawing something's coming, something's coming. And it often shows these figures coming together. So it's not, it's, it is both out there, the spirit of the times, and it's way out there, the spirit of the depths. Other human beings have lived through times like this. Just not, none of us alive has lived through a time like this.
0: I think of lastly, again, just because of how potent all this is of, of also Aries, Mars being right there in the mix. And so again, from as a therapist, being with people still every week, although now over the phone, but and just personal life of who, who's in the world that it feels so it is either incredibly busy somehow still, even though we're in our small worlds here, that it still feels incredibly busy, or it feels incredibly busy internally, like the the healing and the movement and the panic and whatever, there's still this incredible amount of energy happening, right?
1: Yeah, how could I forget Mars? Boy, he's going to kick my butt. You know, I mean, Mars, the, the, there are so many ways to talk about the Marshall, but, you know, at its most benign, it's how you organize yourself to stand up and take space. But at its most effective and at its, at its most potent, it's action and aggression and defense. And that is the fourth figure that comes into the mix. And then, of course, in December and January, the sun, Mercury, the nodes, Venus, and so this huge experience of everything drawing together to tee something up that is going to have ramifications for h- right. hundreds of years.
0: Right. Twenty twenty four is when Pluto moves into Aquarius, but this okay. the heat and intensity of this particular time. We've still got it for much of twenty twenty, and then it's going to move on. Yeah. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Emily. We are ready for you. My question actually is about Aquarius. Um, in, in Jung's natal chart, he has Saturn in Aquarius on his
1: first house opposite the sun. And since Saturn just moved into Aquarius and it'll retrograde, but then stay in Aquarius for the next three years or so, I was wondering if Carol could talk about that. I, that's a great question, Emily. It, 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 and a great observation, really. In your horoscope, the first house is the, the field in which you you are constituted traditional astrology we modern astrologers talk about it as the self the capital s self i think that's that, that that that's a good shorthand way if when you're looking at your horoscope that this is the me of me but really what it meant in traditional astrology was it is how you are constituted not just your your body's the sixth house but your constitution is the first house so his whole first his He's constituted Aquarian, which means something in him wants to open, wants to be at the edge in the way that the time of year between late January and late February, the days are longer, there's more light, there's more heat, everything starts to move, everything starts to stir, and everything starts to expand. So there is something in him, we could say constitutionally, that is a pioneer, and that is going to always be pushing himself to the edge of things. Because Saturn lives in the constitution, Saturn, the principle of structures of value and meaning, he is personally constituted to build those structures out of the pioneering, out of being at the edge, out of leading off. And of course, it's also what got rattled the most, because if you're born constitutionally being the the old man, the patriarch the authority figure the rule giver then to have your your world shattered by the next adventure the next pioneering place that you go to it's hugely hugely significant but he also made something out of it that is his personal legacy that we're discussing today as saturn gets ready to move into aquarius so It, you know, I, when I, my second or third pass of the Red Book, I was really struggling with something. And I thought, listen, if that guy could face that, I can face this, you know, I can go there too. I'm going there, you know, of, of what was just like knocking on my door all the time. And it's like, no, I'm not going to answer that. No, I'm not going to answer that. And then somehow the second or third reading of the Red Book, it's like, say yes, and so that, I think that's very much what, what this is about, but you see what it cost him to do it, what it costs us to do it. That answer your question?
0: Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. I love that too, because it really, it, Jung is having a Saturn return right now, right? Yeah. I mean, the, with Saturn entering Aquarius, I mean, I know this is different yeah. depending on what house system yeah. astrologers use, but with Saturn having just entered Aquarius, actually, as we study the Red Book and Jung's journey, this is Jung now having a Saturn return and after his passing.
1: There's so much going on with, with Jung in terms of his, how he's organized himself, how he's adapted himself, and how time itself is going to break down his adaptation, which is going to lead to a new flowering, the whole idea really of today, of the desert, of of the aridity of the desert that eventually leads to the flowering. And and also Saturn, wait. You don't just get to go to the five and diamond, buy it, and then you have it. It's a it's a process and it requires some self abnegation and some devotion and time. Maturity. Fundamental. yeah, Yeah. And so that's going on too. But to to me, for me, one of the incredible things is The Sun Neptune square, as Jenny pointed out the first time, the Moon Pluto conjunction, but really also the transiting Jupiter and Capricorn opposite his Mercury Venus. That that time itself is waking up the unwaked feminine in him and giving her a voice—not just giving her eyes, but giving her a voice. So you know, it's a one. It's just such a astrology makes such a great picture of where he is in that process.
0: Thank you, Carolyn. It, it, we're going to wrap up here, but it really, all of that also sets us up for these coming weeks. So next week we are, it's Easter and we're planning on gathering with you all um, for our Easter salon, when we'll talk a bit about resurrection and more about kind of what Jung's journey is to come in the Red Book and uh, what's happening with his understanding of both the murder of the hero and then what comes from that new birth right so we're going to get into that next week we're very much going to be getting more into the feminine voice as she continues to emerge in the voice of his soul through this journey so we are so excited to be doing this again with all of you and really grateful to have all you here again i love just clicking through not having seen at the end of our time to see you so thank you for being here carol anything else before we end the
1: inward turning is this is a part of it to turn inward into our hearts and our bellies. So the best to all of you.
0: For more, please visit solomeinstitute.com And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this audio into a podcast to the very talented Haley Hendrix for our intro and outro music and to Ray Davis for our podcast art. We're grateful to all of you. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome podcast.